Welcome to the Sonic Nuance Electronics Podcast, focusing on topics of interest to worship teams as well as anyone involved with musical recording and performance. Today's interview is with Matt McGlynn, founder of Roswell Pro Audio. Thanks for your time for coming on board here. Could you please give a brief introduction to your two companies, Mike Parts and Roswell Pro Audio? Yeah, thanks, Ted. I appreciate you having me on. So uh, I got in uh, pretty deep into microphones. And so there's uh, actually the first company was, uh, it's a website called recordinghacks.com. And uh, it was something I put together uh, out of my frustration with not understanding as much as I felt like I needed to about microphones. I, I'm a musician, I was recording myself at home, and um, I had a, a, a real revelation at one point um, where I had been using a certain pair of microphones and they sounded like, you know, my, I don't know, I, I recorded my drums and I could hear them. I thought, boy, that's, that's pretty cool. And then at some point, someone recommended an alternate pair of microphones and I tried those and it was a night and day difference. It was uh, mind-blowing how much better my drums sounded. There was more space, more definition, more punch, you know, more of everything good and no funky, weird coloration. And I thought, okay, so clearly there's something to this uh, gear selection process that I hadn't understood previously. And, uh, and I need to understand more about it so I can make more educated choices because I had just blown 300 bucks on what was apparently the wrong, the wrong pair of microphones. Um, and so I started a website called recordinghacks.com, which was uh, the shorthand way I describe it to people is Wikipedia for microphones. And the idea of it is, um, you can look up any microphone and it tells you objectively all about it. They're not reviews. I do have reviews on there as well, but mostly it's an objective description of what's inside the microphone. That led me to uh, the idea of upgrading microphones because there's a subculture of DIY audio people out there who will go to Guitar Center uh, and they'll buy an inexpensive microphone for 50 bucks or $100 and then they'll upgrade it. And there's a whole, uh, there are places online where you can find recommendations for capacitors that you can put in. And, um, and that's actually, <laughs> capacitors is where most DIY mods start and stop. Um, but uh, I began manufacturing capsules, which is a really more critical part of the microphone. Mm -hmm. So that company was called microphoneparts.com or Mike Parts. And the company's still in business. And, um, it, and it's evolved quite a bit from uh, just selling capsules, which is how we started, to selling uh, upgrade kits for circuits, to selling now all-inclusive microphone kits. You're basically buying a $1,500 microphone in a bag, and it's, it's a circuit board and a bunch of parts and an empty body, and you solder the thing together yourself. And, and the magic there is that it didn't cost you $1,500. It cost you under $400. It just sounds like it cost $1,500. Um, and then that led... Uh, one step at a time to uh, Roswell Pro Audio, which is a company that makes, and it's funny to have to distinguish because there aren't any other microphone companies in the world that have to clarify that these are finished products. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so Roswell makes finished microphones and finished means they come with accessories and a logo and a warranty and, and, um, and you just plug them in and use them, you know, like, like most microphones, no soldering required. So that's, that's sort of the history and the evolution, and, uh, and, that's, uh, and that's how the two companies, that's what they do right now. The Mike Parts name makes sense. Uh, Roswell, how did you come up with that name? <laughs> uh, 
That's a funny question. Um, it's I, I have a terrible time naming things. Naming things is hard. Yes. Um, if, if for anyone who has kids, uh, I don't know, maybe some people have it easy. We went back and forth for months when, when my wife was pregnant. Um, so Roswell um, is a name that I liked. Um, I don't remember where it came from particularly. Certainly it's related to my fascination with uh, the sort of alternate histories of you know UFO landings and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. Before picking that name, I went through every cool uh, namespace I could think of. Uh, <laughs> you know, Greek gods and gemstones and secret <laughs> mission names um, from military history. And I, I just went through all these things and couldn't come up with anything that didn't sound dumb the next day. Um, and, but Roswell, through all that, Roswell uh, just stuck. And then we came up with the cool flying saucer logo and, and we're just going to mm-hmm. we're going to stick with it. I like it. Yeah, I went through a similar thing with my business. Uh, yeah, I think I had a hundred different names and then whittling it down. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really a hard, hard process. Yeah, because it, it, I don't know, it feels like when you when you name something, it like it needs to be uh, full of meaning already. And of course, that's not true. It develops that meaning over time. Um, and the hard thing about microphones, too, is the industry is, is pretty... It's a pretty, uh, what's the word, serious or self-serious industry. Most of the companies are named after their founders. Um, but I wasn't going to make McGlynn microphones. I don't need to have my name on the thing. That seems like a lot to ask somehow. <laughs> it's like, who am I, you know? So. I, I was afraid of damaging my family's name doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you talk about how the landscape has changed for microphones since you started the business? Yeah, there's just more. Um, there's just more of everything, and it's uh, it, it certainly makes it hard. I mean, on the, so on the mic part side, at the time that I started that, there were only a, what one like one main other guy who was making capsules um, that you could buy sort of a la carte. Um, mm-hmm. And then and now there's five or more because a lot of the people who were making them in order to make microphones have seen, oh, there's money being left on the table because, you know, people who want capsules are buying the other guys. So why don't I put mine out there, Mm -hmm. too? So the people who are already making them have begun selling them and then other people have begun making them. Um, And then uh, and there were really there was only, I think, one guy making uh, microphone kits but um, the one, at least the one that I'm thinking of, it was basically a, a Chinese microphone in, that, that wasn't assembled, right? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing inherently wrong with a microphone made in China, but this particular microphone was just not, it, it wasn't and isn't great. It's, a, it's, a, it's, you know, when you build it, you're going to end up with something that you can buy for $75. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the kit costs a little less than that and you get the joy of building it. And I, you know, I don't, I don't deny that. I think that's a great thing. Um, but it's not something that you build because you're going to end up with a terrific piece of gear. It's something you build because you enjoy soldering and you don't want to spend a lot of money on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the kits that Mike Parts makes are different. They're, they have no compromises built in. They're just sort of best-in-class best parts, and we really work very hard to make them great. Uh, and we've got some amazing reviews for them. But um, So how's the landscape changed is that now there's... Uh, a, a, well, I don't think anyone actually has complete all-inclusive kits the way we do it with really good documentation but they're getting there you know there are there are other people doing it 
Um, and then on the Roswell side, I, I think one of the big trends is that a lot of the bigger brands that were sort of premium pricing, you know, $1,000 plus, they're all making less expensive gear now because mm-hmm. uh, I, guess it's, I guess it's hard to base your company on products that all cost $1,200 or more. Um, you're just going to move a lot less volume, but if you're moving less volume, it's hard to get a buzz because, you know, no one knows about your product until some percentage of the population is using it. But if they're all $1,500 a piece, then that's just a much slower process. So now it seems like a lot of the bigger brands are racing to the bottom of, of the price spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so now you can buy some of the fancier brands that were formerly associated with these higher prices for under $500. So uh, there's just a lot more competition, which is interesting because it's, I don't think the market's gotten any bigger. At least the consumer side of that market hasn't gotten any bigger. It's just that there's a whole lot more to pick from now, which really, I mean, it's, it's great news for consumers. It's not so great for the manufacturers. Well, it can be. It depends if they're all high quality. <laughs> if, it's, if it's more uh, junk on the market, it's not necessarily better, yeah. I, I would think. Yeah, but it's, it's just ever harder to distinguish you know, the, the junk from the gems. Yes, yes, yes. Can you talk a little bit about designing microphones? What are some of the trade-offs that you have to make in terms of cost, sensitivity, noise, that kind of stuff? Yeah, for sure. Um, You know, well, you know, this gets to the question that I get all the time, which is what's the best vocal mic? Uh, Or what's the best anything mic? And sometimes people say, oh, and here's the kind of voice that I have, or here's the kind of songs that I like to sing. And the sad but true answer is there isn't a best. Um, it depends on the specific voice. And it's not enough to say that I'm a tenor or I sing rap. Fine. There's still 50 microphones that might be awesome, but there are, it, it depends on the production. It depends on the room. Uh, what kind of sound are you going for? What do you hear? You know, everyone's ears are different too. Um, and so for me, microphone design is all around uh, a specific application um, so there are trade-offs for sure. In fact, everything about audio design, as you well know, is about trade-offs. So one of the ones we run into all the time is sensitivity versus noise. So most of the products that I make are designed for singer-songwriter people who want to put up a vocal mic and get a great-sounding track without a lot of hiss. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a lot of those people don't have a $1,000 per channel preamp to use, um, and so we crank up the sensitivity in the microphone so that even with a $100 Mackie USB interface, you're still going to get a lot of signal and a really high quality signal and not a lot of noise or hiss behind the vocal mm-hmm. because nobody wants to hear that. Um, what that means though is that you know the microphones we make that have this high sensitivity, if you put them on a snare drum, they're massively going to overload. And mm-hmm. if the mic, even if the mic has enough internal headroom, uh, your preamp will overload. You'll just clip your preamp. Um, so it's, there's no such thing, in my mind, there's no such thing as an all-purpose microphone. Um, mm-hmm. you know, conversely, uh, the mic um, that I like to use for podcasts is uh, a dynamic mic, and it has relatively low sensitivity, um, which means you can put it into a kick drum, and it's going to be okay with that. Um, mm-hmm. But it means if you don't have a really good preamp signal chain, you're going to get hiss, you know, because when you take any preamp and you turn it up to 11, it's going to sound like a rainfall, right? You're going to hear the hiss in the background. Yeah. So right. that's, that's one of the big trade-offs. Um, but there's a lot, you know, in terms of uh, headroom and sensitivity and noise and, and uh, you know, basically everything else too. <laughs> 
if I were to record drums or bass or guitar or whatnot, are are your mics more geared toward vocals or or it really depends on the situation? It definitely depends. And one of the things you can look for when you're looking for a more versatile mic is whether it has a pad on it. Um, so mm. the way that we implement a pad is we basically cut down the, the voltage right at the front end of the microphone, and that prevents the mic's internal mm. circuitry from clipping. And it also reduces the output level coming out of the back end of the mic so that your preamp doesn't get uh, stressed either. Um, so on the, on the DIY kit side, um, most of our products have a pad option um, and on the Roswell side, uh, one of the two mics has a pad right on it, and the other one's, the next revision of the other one will have a pad on it as well. Just because that's, you know, given that we're focusing on a higher output design in general, um, having a pad gives you a little bit more versatility. Um, mm -hmm. So the first Roswell mic that came out is a mic called the Mini K47. And it was, it was kind of in the middle of the range in terms of sensitivity. It wasn't super, super high but a little bit higher than your typical guitar center sort of purchase. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we did that on purpose uh, for uh, mostly for vocalists and acoustic guitar. It was, that's the, kind of the sweet spot. What we didn't expect is that everybody loves that mic on drum overheads. Now, drum overheads, uh, that, in that position, uh, the microphone will see a lot more volume or higher SPL, higher sound pressure level than you would typically get from a guy speaking or singing from six inches away because a, a rim shot on the snare drum could be 120, 130 decibels. Mm -hmm. um, so the mic tends to do okay, but uh, as I mentioned before, the preamp will often clip, depending on your preamp. You know, some preamps, when they're turned down all the way, are still putting in 10 or 20 dB of gain. Um, so in that sort of application, uh, people can use an inline pad. Um, but, uh, you know, the, so the, the pad option is a really good one. It, it just gives the mic a lot more versatility because then you can, you can approach those higher output uh, sources. And so I'm going to ask the question that you probably get asked a lot. <laughs> What's the best uh, mic but, for vocals? <laughs> uh, no, not necessarily for vocals, even worse. Uh, for, for live performance, if uh, you had somebody who wanted to do percussion or drums or, yeah. or a guitar amp, that kind of stuff, what, how would you approach answering that question? Right. So I, um, I, I wouldn't recommend a specific microphone, but what I do all the time is recommend a kind of microphone because mm -hmm. there are different ways to do that, that action of, of transferring acoustic energy into electrical energy, which is the job that microphones do. Um, a, a condenser microphone, so there's different types. In general, what you'll find on the market today, there's three different types. There's ribbon microphones, uh, dynamic microphones, and, uh, and uh, condenser microphones. Uh, strictly speaking, a ribbon is also considered a dynamic, but for the purposes of this discussion, it's really its own type because it works in a totally different way than a dynamic, which is to say a moving coil dynamic, which is like the Shure SM57, the most popular dynamic microphone in the world. Right. Um, so for stage use, you don't see condensers as often, and the reason is that condensers uh, are really good at hearing at a distance. They hear really far into the room. And on mm -hmm. stage, in general, that's the kiss of death because you don't want the vocal mic to hear the drums and the bass cabs because then you get feedback or you just get a mishmash of, of muddy sound. Right. Um, dynamic microphones tend to be a lot less sensitive and they tend to have a sweet spot that's sort of right in front of them because they're engineered to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, 
And so they end up working really well for a source that's four inches away amidst a sea of, of noise on the stage. So for me, what I typically recommend for stage use is a dynamic microphone. Um, those tend to work really well. Now, there are exceptions. Um, my buddy Phil Graham at Ear Trumpet Labs has had great success, especially in the sort of Americana and bluegrass uh, uh, performance world with his condenser mics. So if you've never seen Ear Trumpet, they're, you, well, you'd know it if you'd seen them. They're very unique looking. He'll build a capsule that's sitting inside of a T-ball inside it, suspended in the middle of like a sprocket from a bicycle. And so they're very steampunky looking and very distinctive, which I think is why a lot of those artists love them. Because when you put that thing up on stage, people say, wow, what the hell's that? That's amazing. Yeah. You know, it looks incredible. And they sound great too. And, he, and his niche seems to be, uh, and I, not to pigeonhole him at all, but he's had a lot of success in this area of condenser mics for stage. So I would say if you're the front man for an acoustic band, I, and I probably wouldn't recommend these for a band with amps because the stage volume for an electric band is so much higher, which means that the, the bleed problem is so much worse. But if, mm -hmm. if you're the front guy for an acoustic band, I would say definitely check out Ear Trumpet Labs because uh, a lot of guys have done it before with really great results. That being said, for me, I would typically recommend a dynamic mic, a moving coil dynamic mic for stage. Now, percussion's a little unique uh, and it kind of depends on the application. And I, I've never been a sound guy for a, a band with percussion. So I'm speaking in hypotheticals here. I don't have direct experience. But um, uh, I, I think it would be challenging if you're trying to mic like uh, congas and bongos and cowbells and handheld stuff, you know, clave and whatever else with one microphone. And there's, you know, maybe a four mm -hmm. foot wide setup in a percussion table and the guy's moving back and forth among five or six different sources, I think that would be really hard to do well on stage with a single microphone. And maybe in that case, you put him, you know, at the back corner of the stage and you use a condenser and you're, and you're going for that kind of microphone that can hear further across the room because some of his sources are three feet away. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's worth trying. Um, my inclination on stage is always to uh, put the dynamic mic close to the source and, uh, and, and keep the gain turned down. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's that's where I would start. Makes sense. And I, I noticed that the majority of your mics are uh, condenser types. Uh, do you you have a ribbon type, I believe? And I'm not sure about dynamic. Do you do you have dynamics as well? We don't. Um, and our mics are, are really not designed for stage at all. Um, okay. So uh, I'm sure they've been used. Uh, especially on the Roswell side, um, the Mini K47 is such a great guitar cabinet mic that there's mm -hmm. no reason why you couldn't put one on stage, um, you know, with an electric amplified band, and and because it's going to be you know, it's going to be rubbing against the grill cloth of a four by ten cab, it's not right. going to hear anything else because that cab mm -hmm. is so loud and so close. So certainly can be done, um, but uh, no, we don't do dynamics. You know, the the reality is dynamics are a lot harder to do well. Um, I visited hmm. the Shure factory in, or the headquarters in Chicago, near Chicago, and they showed me the books, uh, the notebooks, handwritten notebooks from the guy that designed the SM57. And there is, <laughs> there's a half inch worth of single space scribbling behind that mic in terms of the science of it. And, um, and that microphone has less handling noise. So this is the this SM57 and the SM58. So to be clear, these are $99 microphones. Mm -hmm. And Shure sells, 
you know, probably a hundred a day. I just made that number up, but I mean, it's a lot. They sell more mics in a day than I have probably ever sold in my life. Um, and, and they deserve it. You know, they've done the science and the math and the production and the testing and it's incredible. But the point of it is those two dynamic microphones have less handling noise than any other dynamic on the market. Um, and they've proven this internally. They buy everything from everyone else and they test it on, the, on a shake table. They put the microphone, they plug it in, stick it on a table that vibrates with predictable behaviors and measure the output. Um, and the reason their mic has less handling noise is because there is what they call a pneumatic shock mount built into the handle so hmm. that mechanical vibration is, the, the acoustic energy of mechanical vibration is canceled out by the damping factors applied by the, the air cushion behind the capsule. And that's built into a specific volume in the handle of the microphone. And it takes a PhD to even understand how that works. Um, but, uh, but, but that sort of, if you don't do that sort of thing, you end up with, I mean, you can build a dynamic microphone. You can, you can buy uh, 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 dynamic cartridges or capsules um, for not a lot of money. And you, can so and you don't even need like transformers and things. You solder that to an XLR jack and, hey, you've got a dynamic mic, but it's going to sound <laughs> awful. <laughs> yes. Um, so that's why we don't do it because to do it well takes a lot more science than, than I want to, I, I, I can't do it. Honestly, I don't know how to do it. Um, and not to mention the fact that you can buy a really great one for not a lot of money. So why would someone buy mine? You mm. know, so that's why we do condensers. You know, we can, we can build a great condenser for, you know, less than half the price of the competition. Um, you know, especially at the, at the premium level. Um, some of the companies that make very nice condenser microphones, they charge $2,000 for it. And these things are beautiful. No question mm -hmm. about it. And they come in tweed suitcases and they have, uh, you know, gold foil branding on the suitcase and on the wooden box that's inside the suitcase and on the microphone itself. And everything about it is gorgeous. And it's an amazing experience to purchase and own that. And I, I think that's great for people who have the money, okay? Because mm -hmm. if you're going to spend $2,000 on a mic, you better have a great experience. But I can match the acoustics of that for a quarter of the price. And I'm not saying I will never go after the super high end of that market, but there is a price differential there that we can leverage to make our products successful, right? Yes. So that's why it makes yeah. sense for us to do condensers. We can, we can match the acoustics of the, you know, the, the premium mics for a lot less money. On the dynamic side... No, we can't, you know, because mm -hmm. the dynamics don't cost $2,000 anyway. They, they cost $99. <laughs> That's a great explanation. Uh, can we focus a little bit on the capsules for the condenser mics? Um, can you tell me um, what are some of the things you look for when designing them? Uh, for example, I noticed the majority of them are round, and I don't know much about them other than that they're capacitors. Uh, at the most basic form, but yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the reality is most of the work on these was done long before I was born. Uh, hmm. the capsules that we make are modeled after designs perfected in Europe in the fifties. Okay. Hmm. So there's, there's, um, a handful of unique condenser capsule designs that are in common use today. And two of the most popular were invented by Neumann in Germany. And the third most popular was developed by AKG. Um, and this is all a very long time ago. And 
they do all happen to be round. Um, curiously, the roundness of them uh, creates some problems that other shapes would alleviate. Um, but I suppose round is easier to manufacture. There are companies that make other ones. Um, Pearl and MyLab, I think both of those are in Sweden. They make rectangular. And there's a company uh, called Erlund. I think it's pronounced Erlund. And they make a uh, triangular one. Uh, the other two are rectangular. I'm not sure I said that right. But the, the Pearl and MyLab are rectangular and Erlund is triangular. And then there's one shaped like an ear uh, from Jay-Z. And then there's a very neat golden ellipsoid uh, developed by George Cardis and David Bach. And that's in the Bach 507, 507. And then the other one of note is the uh, the rectangular one from Audio-Technica, which is in there, which is the 5040. And there's actually four of them, four capsules stacked in a two-by-two two grid. And mm-hmm. that's an electorate model, um, which means nothing to most lay people. So I'll not go on about that, but it sounds great. Um, anyway, yeah, they're mostly round. And most people, um, rather than try to develop something new, they will copy the ones developed in Europe in the, in the 50s because they're reliable, they're well understood, and relatively easy to make. Um, and they can be made, uh, they can be made to sound great. So, um, you know, again, most people don't go off and try to break new ground and make something new, um, unless they have a very big budget, uh, and mm-hmm. a whole lot of time. And even then, most of the ones that are developed new are basically variations on the existing ones. For example, let's take the existing, uh, design and make it a little bit bigger and then make that work. And that's not to say that's a small task. That's a big task, but um, but it's not really a new design either. It's just a larger version mm-hmm. of the one that they developed in the 50s. Um, so yeah, they're round. They are capacitors. Um, they uh, uh, So a capacitor is basically two metal plates, um, and the way that these things transduce sound is that one of the plates is very, very thin, and it vibrates when sound hits it. And as, the, as that outer plate or diaphragm vibrates, the gap between the two plates changes, which causes a change in capacitance, which char- which causes a change in output voltage, assuming these plates are charged in the first place. Um, so that's uh, that's basically how they work. And um, uh, in an earlier conversation, you had mentioned, you know, why gold and mylar on the diaphragm. And um, the basic answer, as far as I understand it, is, uh, you know, that outer plate needs to be flexible um, and because it needs to vibrate when sound hits it, right? So you can't have a piece of steel mm-hmm. in there because that's just not going to move. Um, so it needs to be very, very thin and lightweight. And in the old days, um, some of these were made with a metal film, literally a very, very thin piece of metal. And they would like they would pour uh, metal onto a substrate and then dissolve away the substrate, and you're left with like a piece of nickel that's, you know, some number of microns thick. Uh, hmm. The problem with that is there's no material between these two plates. So the, the capsule has a back plate and a diaphragm and they're very close together. Um, and if a really loud sound hits that diaphragm and the they diaphragm connect. runs into the back plate <laughs> and you get an arc, yeah. which doesn't do kind things to your audio file, you get like a big <laughs> pop and then you get nothing after that. And actually in some of the old Neumann mics that were made that way, um, that arc will actually burn a hole in the diaphragm. It'll burn a tiny pinhole in it. So that's not a good thing for long-term care and maintenance of your yeah. expensive vintage microphone. So now they use um, a thin sheet of plastic with some metal painted on it. Um, and the plastic is an insulating layer. So if for some reason the diaphragm does smack into the back plate, it's not conductive because it's plastic. Ah, uh, but then the outside of that needs to be coated with metal. And they use gold for that, uh, I believe, because it doesn't oxidize. 
Um, ah, you know, if after ah. if after a year your metal layer was, you know, all uh, oxidized and hairy and had or turned into into some other oxide material or had become caked with you know, or tarnished or something, then it wouldn't work very well anymore. So gold is relatively inert, and mm-hmm. you know, fifty years later, it's covered with spit and smoke and whatever else, but it still works. <laughs> it's still gold under there. It's not some other kind of strange oxide that isn't conductive. Um, and then the mylar, I think they use that because it's um, readily available, uh, relatively easy to make two consistent thicknesses. And mm-hmm. these are very thin. Um, typical thickness for this is six microns. Wow. Um, and so it's wow. it's super, super thin and lightweight and a little tricky to handle because uh, it gets charged with static and then it wants to like crumple up and fold and things. So it's tricky to work with, but at the same time, you know, companies can make it and it's uniform and it's very thin and... Uh, and you can paint metals on it, and it and it works. So. Interesting. I also noticed on your website um, that some of these capsules have terminals in the center of them, and some on the outside. Is are there a reason for that that you know of, other than that's the way it was done? Yeah, you know, I think it's like um, you can make a car that's rear wheel drive or front wheel drive mm-hmm. or all wheel drive, and they're not all equivalent. Uh, they all get the same job done, right? They make the car go forward um, and they all have different advantages. Uh, you know, front wheel drive maybe handles better, all wheel drives better in mud. Mm-hmm. So um, the edge terminated capsule uh, has different performance than the uh, center terminated styles. Um, and, you know, for example, it's capable of uh, greater frequency range. Hmm. Um due to certain physical characteristics of the way the diaphragm can vibrate, not having a pin through the center of it. Um, right. But, uh, you know, it's not to say that any one of those is necessarily better. Um, you know, for the most part, microphones uh, need to capture sound from 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. And if you can get to that with a center-terminated design, then you're done. You know, mm-hmm. what difference does it make if the other design can go down to 2 hertz? Because, you know, guess what? Nobody can hear it. And it's going to saturate your tape anyway, and so on and so forth, right? So there's always these trade-offs. Um, they do sound different. They're used for different kinds of things. Um, in practice, the the most famous edge-terminated capsule design in the world is AKG's CK12. That's the name of it. And that was used in the uh, the C12. That was a, a mic from AKG. And the Telefunken Elam 251, um, which is one of the most famous female vocal mics ever made. Hmm. Um so often, even today, um, you know, we find, because we make an edge-terminated capsule that's kind of a copy of that design, and we find it works great on female vocals. Um, so that's, you know, some of those characteristics just sort of, they translate. They, you know, they belong, mm-hmm. they're characteristics of the capsule, but they, they still work today, um, even with our sort of modernized versions of these designs. So they all sound different, and, you know, some are good for different things, but they're all absolutely usable. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So they're like different tools that you would use for different applications. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, um, Strat versus, uh, help me the out. Telly. Yeah, there it Tele. is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a guitar guy. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about tube mics. Uh, they tend to have this mythical attraction. Can Can you explain in layman terms when a tube mic might be a good choice for a recording? Yeah. Or a performance. Well, so this is, you know, if you ask 10 engineers, you'll probably get 10 different answers. Um, this is the way I think about it. And again, I make no 
pretense that this is the answer or the only answer. This is my answer. Um, mm-hmm. There are different kinds of circuits. And it's, it's like the two-wheel versus four-wheel drive kind of analogy. They excel at different things. There are transformerless circuits that tend to be very clean and pristine. And whatever sound the capsule hears is kind of passed straight through to the output. Uh, and then there are, so that means uh, passed through, you know, without noise, without distortion. Then there are transformer coupled circuits and or tube circuits. And what tubes and transformers tend to do is muck up the sound. Um, and what that means is they create distortion. Um, mm-hmm. Now, if they're designed well, they create second harmonic distortion, which is the good kind. Um, and so uh, second harmonic distortion, and you could probably speak more intelligently to this than I can, but it's basically not out of key or strange sounding. Um, and so it often enhances a track. It's, it's heard as a sonic enhancement mm-hmm. to a vocal track or really an instrument track or anything. It kind of has a thickening effect on the sound. And um, so if you can design a tube microphone such that the tube and or transformer are creating that second harmonic distortion, ideally without a lot of third harmonic or other odd order harmonic distortion, then chances are that microphone is going to sound good and have a a sort of sweetening effect on the audio track. Um, Hmm. So, you know, when is that appropriate? Well, it depends on the production. You know, um, some people swear by tube mics, some people swear at them. Uh, you know, they, they require more maintenance. They need a warm up period and a break in period. They're more fragile because they've got a typically glass tube stuck inside. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they wear out, I assume over time, they wear out and they get noisy and all those things. And tubes are often microphonic, which means if you tap on it while it's being used, you'll hear a ping sound coming through the, mm-hmm. the audio track. Solid state microphones tend not to do that. So I know you you are have a special interest in stage miking, and you know would I use a tube mic on stage? Well, I wouldn't. You know they're mm-hmm. they're clumsy. They they always need a separate power supply. Um, there have been only one or two two well two or three tube microphones in history that you could run off phantom power, meaning off the forty eight volts that any console would supply. Um, otherwise, you need a power supply, which means you've got an extra box and a power cord, and then another cable that has to run across the stage. Um, and, and between the fragility of them and the microphonic nature of a lot of them, um, I, you know, you'd have to love that sound in, to put up with the costs the of dealing headaches, with it on stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there is something else to be said. Um, I mean, the, the, the main reason people would want to use a tube mic in, in my world, again, would be because they want that second harmonic distortion sound. Um, in that context, second harmonic coloration is a friendlier word because you know people say distortion mm-hmm. and you think, oh, I don't want distortion. Well, in truth, you do. You want the good mm-hmm. kind of distortion. But in any case, um, you can get to that sound without the tube. There is a way to build a solid state microphone that that has a transformer in it typically that would create some of that second harmonic distortion. There's a way to set up a, a JFET, uh, which is a transistor that's, that's used in place of a tube, um, and the reason I mention it is because we have a DIY kit that was designed for that specific purpose. Um, and so it's something you could play with. Like if you thought, okay, well, you know, I want that, that sort of richness, that harmonic richness that a tube mic might convey, but I don't want to lug a tube mic to the stage because of all these other issues. Well, mm-hmm. I could try this solid state microphone 
that on its own, without a tube, uh, was engineered to create second harmonic coloration. And maybe that would get you, you know, what you want without most of the hassle or the cost of, mm -hmm. a, having, of having a tube mic. Interesting. I'm glad you brought up the DIY uh, project. Can you uh, t talk a little bit about the skills needed for someone who's purchasing one of your DIY kits? Sure, yeah. So, um, so I do all the tech support myself, and I hate to get emails from people who get in over their heads. So I'm, I'm mm -hmm. happy to counsel people away. We actually have a page on the website that says, start here, you know, um, start with a capsule swap, because that requires soldering two spots or maybe three. Mm -hmm. um, and most people can handle that. Um, but there is a progression there. Um, we have had first timers come in, first timers meaning they've never soldered anything to a circuit board in their lives. And they're, if they're patient and they're willing to read through the manual, they can successfully complete the mod. That said, I don't recommend it. I would, I would prefer if people learn how to solder first and learn how to form uh, good, consistent solder joints. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's the main skill. Uh, the kits that we make all have really great documentation. So it's a booklet, it's got color photographs, and it goes through step by step. It's got arrows that point to you know, the things that you need to pay attention to, and it'll call out and say, this particular component needs to go in, in this direction because otherwise it won't work. Um, and, it, and then when someone emails me and they say, hey, I have a question about, you know, page 17. Did you mean this or this? Then I'll go back to page 17 and revise it so that the next guy doesn't ask me that question because mm -hmm. um, I don't want to spend the rest of my life answering the same questions over and over again. I don't have time for that. Um, so a lot of our documentation has been constantly improved. Um, we actually put a version number on the back and we're up to, you know, version five and six and seven of our more popular kits. Um, so basic skills needed. You have to know how to solder. Um, and, and you have to have the patience to read the manual. Um, you know, we often get questions from people I think of as old timers. I'm not exactly young, but <laughs> people I think of as old timers who they say, well, I don't need the documentation. I just need a schematic. And I'll just take the schematic and I'll build the mic from that. And they get a third of the way through it. And they say, well, I, you know, it doesn't work because of this and that. And I say, well, did you read the directions on page 10 where it said, whatever you do, don't do that. And they're like, no, I just, <laughs> I just had the schematic. And I say, well, okay. So, uh, yeah, have the patience to read the directions and, and, and work through it step by step. And, and I think it'll, I mean, you know, according to my records, it'll go through. We don't, we don't get, like, I don't get emails from everybody who buys them. I'd, I'd be out of business. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, just follow the directions and, uh, and, and, and build up your soldering chops first. I usually call out, um, I think it's called uh, learntosolderkits.com or something like that. If you Google learn to solder kit, it's a couple of people I met I think at the Maker Fair, and they make uh, very affordable, like ten and fifteen dollar kits, and it's a little circuit board and a couple of diodes and a little battery holder, and you build a little thing that lights up, and it doesn't do anything, but it lets you. Pr I mean, functionally, right? It doesn't do anything functionally, but it gives you the opportunity to practice your soldering on something that's yeah. going to turn on at the end, and I think that's a great way to start. Please don't buy a three hundred dollar microphone kit to learn how to solder. That's a terrible idea. Buy a $15 kit to learn how to solder and then come build a microphone. <laughs> Good point. I, I like that. Um, what would you say to someone who goes on your website and might be critical of the pricing of the products? And 
I, I that's a hard question for me to ask as a businessman, but I just want to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, no, I get the question. Um, um, as a consumer, you know, everything's too expensive. Um, yes. What I tell people, and, and we've been very fortunate. I mean, Mike Parts has been around for seven years or something. So we've had a bit of a runway to hone the products. Um, and unfortunately, as time has gone, gone on, the prices have gone up because the reality is production is just more expensive. You know, labor costs never go down. They only go up. Materials mm -hmm. costs only go up, especially in California. You know, you can't paint. Um, you can't chemical strip anything anymore. So um, so we're having to find green ways to do things, which is fine. I, I love that, but it always costs more. Um, so, uh, so someone says, you know, why is it so expensive? I say, well, what's your alternative? You know, my, like my transformer coupled microphone kit, um, a, a very famous uh, producer, engineer, musician called Greg Wells. He worked with Adele and 21 Pilots and Katy Perry and, you know, lots of awards. And he's credited with like, what is it? 85 million units sold or something. Wow. And he, he heard my $400 microphone kit and he said, this microphone sounds like $5,000. This has never happened before. So if someone complains to me, well, why is this, you know, $379? I say, well, you know what? It sounds like 5,000. So that's a pretty good deal because you're going to so spend 90 minutes soldering it together. And so that means, you know, $5,000 minus the 400 you spent is $4,600 and you spent two hours building it. So that's $2,300 an hour to solder it together. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> that's the most money you've ever made in your life. <laughs> that's pretty compelling. I like that. <laughs> yeah. But that's, you know, that's, that's the DIY side of it. That's the benefit. Um, we've had a lot of dealers um, want to buy kits in bulk. And of course, they always hit me up for a discount. They say, well, if I buy 10, you know, what discount can I get? And I say, well, why do you want to buy 10? You don't need that many microphones. Oh, well, I'm going to sell them. I'm going to build them and sell them for $800 a piece. And I say, okay, let me get this straight. You know, I'm going to do all this work and design this thing and make a hundred bucks or whatever on the kit. And then you're going to solder it together for two hours and make four or $500 on it. That doesn't make sense to me. So that, and that's one of the reasons we don't have dealers for the finished products or really for the kits either. You know, we sell direct, there's no middleman markup. So, um, so there's, there's a huge price multiplier because it's a kit. Um, and so for the people who have the chops to solder it together or are willing to build them, and uh, th then they, they have a lot to gain um, because mm -hmm. I, I very deeply believe you can build a world-class mic for a fraction of the price. Um, yeah, so. and I think it's a great business model too in that you're leveraging um, uh, the, uh, the enclosures that... Uh, don't necessarily cost that much that you don't have to provide you can let people buy a cheaper mic um, and then either gut it and start from there or after time say hey I, I want something that sounds better and then they can upgrade it on their own without with reusing uh, the enclosures exactly or, what do you call them the well, well, mics yeah uh, the microphone body um, mm -hmm. or sometimes we call it the donor body um, that's <laughs> in the DIY audio circles, um, calling a microphone, a donor body is kind of an insult because it, what it's suggesting is that's the only reason you would buy that microphone is cause you're going to take the guts out and replace them. Um, but there is a progression of, uh, that people go through where they start out, 
Um, a lot of guitar players start this way. They say, well, I, you know, I play guitar and I sing and I want to record myself. And they go out and they buy an inexpensive microphone. And it's great for a while. And it's a, mir a miracle that you can plug a microphone that costs you $80 into a USB preamp that costs you, you know, $95. And you're recording yourself with fidelity that's, you know, unheard of 25 years ago. Yes. Um, and I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing that's been happening. But it's inevitable that over time, those people listen back and they think, you know, that really doesn't sound very good. It doesn't really sound like my instrument. Um, the frequency balance is all off and it sounds bright or noisy or, uh, you know, any, any number of adjectives are used to describe the, the badness of some of those tracks that are made with really cheap gear. And so, so yeah, there is an option now that they can take that microphone and, uh, and upgrade it. And there is a percentage of the population, and I'm definitely one of them, um, where mentally um, the upgrade budget is different than the purchasing new gear budget. Yes. Um, and so I would never go out and buy a $700 preamp. You know, in, in the old days, I would never, ever have done that. But would I have spent $700 on tools and parts to build something? Absolutely. Because I already had, you know, I already had the case. <laughs> so I'll just go spend a little bit of money on a new circuit board and some parts and a transformer and, you know, on and on and on. But, you know, it mentally comes out of a different budget. Um, so it's, it's easier for some people to justify upgrades. And again, I'm, I'm one of those people. So more, more power to us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned uh, dealers. Do, do you only sell direct or do you also go through dealers? Well, Mike Parts uh, sells almost exclusively direct. Um, mm -hmm. I am pals with Peterson Goodwin of DIY, uh, DIY Recording Equipment or DIYRE. And um, he makes some very cool do-it-yourself audio electronics kits as well. And um, so he carries some of my stuff. Um, I think one kit, um, one or, well, with different capsules, I guess it's three kits, but it's just one of the circuits. Um, but everything else is sold direct. And we actually have a warehouse in the UK as well, because there's a huge market in the EU, the European Union. Hmm. And Europeans, by and large, um, hate to pay tax. I don't blame them. But if they import something from America, they pay 20 to 25 percent to the wow. postman when the package arrives at their door. And um, some of those countries, they'll charge that 20 or 25 percent on the postage, too. So if it's a, a tube microphone, they pay 600 bucks for the tube mic and 150 for shipping. And then 25% on top of the 750, which, you know, that's, that's a big deal. So we, um, we set up a warehouse in uh, London and it will have to move it once Brexit happens, but, um, it's able to ship into the EU as a local store. Um, so, uh, so yeah, we sell direct, uh, direct and local, you know, um, US and, uh, EU and, you know, that, the main reason for that is that it helps keep the prices down. The mm -hmm. reality is dealers want at least 25%, if not 30 to 40. And if you can't give them that, they won't carry your product. And I've tried to get some of my parts into various dealers. You know, we don't have the margin in it. We just, our, our production costs are high enough that we, I can't give up 30% and still make the product. Um, mm -hmm. So we've tried, you know, well, I'll take it as a loss leader just to get the product out there. We'll give them 20% and, Dealers won't bite even at 20%. So, um, but we're happy to sell direct. You know, we're set up for it now. We can ship in volume and, um, and we're good at it. So, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's not a problem at all. And, it's, and, you know, the consumer wins. 
Um, you know, in the old days, there was a, a benefit, a, a confidence benefit to buying locally. Or, or not locally. I mean, there's not that many pro audio dealers, but, you know, if, if you're going to a shop that you know, I mean, pick Sweetwater as an example. Everybody knows Sweetwater. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be going out of business tomorrow. You trust them with your credit card number, et cetera. In the old days, we didn't, we, we had a disadvantage there because we were selling direct and people would say, microphoneparts.com, who's that? You know, right. I don't trust that person with my credit card data. Well, now, you know, we're pretty well established. I don't think there's a trust gap anymore. Um, mm-hmm. But that's that was the only downside back when we started out is is was not being well well enough known that people would trust us. But I think think and hope that we're over that hump by now. And plus, the general public has gotten more trustworthy in terms of putting their credit cards on um, sites that have. Uh, good security put it that way exactly and yeah we used paypal um when we started out and so that's that wasn't even us like i never i never even saw the credit card number i would just get an email that said you know you've got money so right and i i actually don't use paypal i could um but i i use a different service and uh also i don't ever see the credit card numbers nor do i want to for for a lot of reasons uh it opens you up for all kinds of legal hassles and stuff so yeah, if anybody's worried about putting their credit card numbers uh, because of small businesses, I think that it's a valid concern, but I i can't think of any situation where a small business owner would want to <laughs> keep your credit card number. Yeah, exactly. In fact, I, got a, I had a funny phone call from a guy a week or two ago. He emailed and he said, I wanted to buy something from your site, but I'm, I refuse to type my credit card number into the checkout form. So I want to give it to you over the phone. And I wrote him back and I said, you know, if I was a less honest person, I would say, great, give me your money. But the truth is, you're going to call me on your cell phone, reading off your credit card numbers over an unencrypted cell call to my wireless headset, which is also not encrypted. And then I'm going to type it into the exact same web form that you would have used in the first place. (laughs) So it's actually less secure. Plus, you know, you're giving it to me. Normally, I wouldn't even see your credit card number. Now you can't right. trust me because you know I'm not going to stay in business if I'm, you know, running around with people's credit card numbers and doing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, no risk there. But but you're you're literally safer to just type it into the form. <laughs> That's a good argument. <laughs> what is the best way to get more information on your products? Best way is clearly the website. That might be the only way. In fact, so the uh, the DIY business is at mikeparts.com. That's M I C. P-A-R-T-S dot com. Um, and then uh, on the Roswell side, it's roswellproaudio.com. Uh, and so we've got a ton of information up there. We've got videos and audio samples. And um, so, yeah. And uh, and then I, I answer all the email myself. So if anyone has questions, um, the, the email addresses are on both websites. So feel free to drop me a line. And I spend way too much time replying about all kinds of things, even unrelated to the business. So uh, well, that, that's great for uh, consumers to have access. Thank to, you for listening to the to Sonic Nuance Electronics Podcast. Really cool. Yeah, well, I, I try Please to do it. I mean, I would appreciate that as a consumer. So I try to give that service to which people has more when, articles I, when I can on make performance, time to do it. Equipment, as well, as well, thank you so much for your time, Matt. SonicNuance.com has handmade rugged boxes with phantom power. Hope to run into you again. As one well of these as conferences. And yeah, absolutely. Ted, cable. thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I wish all the best to you at Sonic Nuance as well. USA for the Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye bye. Sonic Nuance Electronics. Simply sound. <laughs>